Thank you. I think if you guys need a Bible, they got a couple up here. You guys want to put some hands in the sky and get one? Um, this is an honor. I am excited to be able to come down. This is my second time of coming down and sharing here um, at your guys' church. And I was really blessed by worship with you guys. I thought it was fantastic. I love it. It's a, I, I've always interested about the drums because uh, it's amazing to me how they can take those powerful drums and they can take them up and down. I always am intrigued. But um, my wife and I, we got a chance to come down here and spend the weekend. Um, we always love getting to come down and spend the weekend here, um, especially with no kids, because that changes how you would spend the weekend. Um, and our first time, it was, I think it was last November that we came down, um, we didn't really know much about Springfield, right? So we knew Nukados and like the mall, you know? So we didn't really know a lot, but this time we, we got to spread out a little bit into Springfield and find a little bit more about it. We went to the aviary, which we enjoyed. It was a nice eclectic feel, and we had some crepes, which were delicious. And we still did the normal shopping and stuff. And, you know, but we were able to expand a little bit of our horizon, and hopefully each time we'll be able to see a little bit more. Um, I love, I miss, I'm originally from Southern California, and I miss the architect. Um, like architectural styles, like in the lake we have, there's no style. It's just lake houses, right? It's just, you know, a basement and a small house and the big part is on the back looking over the lake. But like the Victorians and all the different houses and oh, I was, I was loving it. It was very exciting for me. So I appreciate the opportunity and also would encourage you guys um, about the Harvest America. That is actually the church that I got saved at. Um, so I know that that ministry is impacting people. It impacted me, and that's how I got to be in that. And also the little Bible college flyers that are over there. That was the other ministry that impacted me because I went from getting saved to that uh, Bible college, and now I've been here for seven years at the lake. So encourage you guys, if you guys aren't able to make it out at 6, to uh, be a part of that. Uh, pray for them. They have a lot, a lot of people that are being ministered to by the events that are going on. So that's just a little personal testimony and encouragement for you guys. Um, all right, so if you guys will pull out your Bibles, we're going to be in two page places here. Um, we'll be in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll be in Isaiah 6, um, verses 1 through 9, and Philippians 2, 5. So we'll start in Isaiah 6, so if you guys want to open up to that and then just kind of earmark the Philippians 2. Um, I titled the message today, dethroned and the the question that i would have for all of us in here is is who sits on the throne of our lives Um, the outline would be uh who god is god is enthroned Um, what god does god dethroned himself and then the last part would be why we need god and that is because man is enthroned so there's the little outline I hope that that blesses you. That helps me stay on track. I am a very hyperactive person. So if I start going down trails, I'm sorry ahead of time. And hopefully this outline will help me come back on track and drive home the message. So let's ask the Lord to help us because ultimately he's the one that needs to go before us right now anyways. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much um, for this time that we could get together. Lord, that we're able to gather as a, a body of believers and just praise your name, to sing praises unto you, and thank you for the wonderful gift in which you have given to us. Lord, your blood um, being shed for us. And Father, we pray, Lord, as we open your word, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us, continue to, to change us from the inside out, Lord, that we may be made more into your image. 
Father, we pray if we've come in here with anything, Lord, that is not of you, that you would remove it. Lord, that you would show us ways, Lord, in which are leading us astray or dragging us down or sins that so easily ensnare us. Father, we pray that you would just be glorified through our time together here and through our lives collectively today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was challenged with coming up. Tom had talked to me about a month ago about uh, coming down and teaching. And it's always interesting for me to be able to to come and teach just once. Because you run through your mind, well, what am I going to teach on? Right? Like, It's not like just going through and... A normal Sunday morning, you have things you go through, but you get to teach on something that's going on. And the thing that was really sitting in my heart and in my mind was it's something that comes up every four years, something that we all know, wondering who's going to win, what's going to happen. And that's the Olympics. You know it. You know it. Who's going to win? What's going to happen? Are they going to have it because of the viruses? And, you know, no, being real, um, as a parent, as um a ministry leader, I've been challenged um, in my my heart of who sits on the throne of America, right? Who's in that position of authority? And I've been really just kind of processing going through it. And in no way, shape, or form is the message today political. Um, It's definitely uh, theological, spiritual, and it's really coming to that place where the Lord has challenged me um, who sits on the throne of thrones, you know? Um, That Romans 13 where... Uh, Paul was coming and saying that um, that the people should submit themselves to the authorities that were there. And at the time, it was Nero who was killing Christians in horrific ways. And he said, ultimately, God has placed him in position of power, and God is in control. And that's what I really wanted to focus on with this, because, one, because my heart was being shaken. You know, it, a turmoil that's going around us, all the different things that are going on. It seems like hate is just fueling and just becoming more and more prevalent and I have young ones, and I think about the world that they're going to be raised in and how they're going to be growing up. And it, it gets to where I start getting anxious, and I start getting um, fearful, and I start losing perspective of who God is. And I start looking around and going, well, if somebody would get into this position, it would change that. And ultimately, my faith isn't on God, it's on man. And so the idea behind today's message is that we would all come to the place where we would look where our, our priorities are being placed, where our heart is resting, And if it's not on God, that we would come to the place where we would surrender and and get him back on the throne. And so with that, the first thing that I wanted to to share, again, who sits on the throne of your life, is Psalm 50, um, verse 21. Psalm 50 is is God just speaking to the children of Israel, and he's he's basically putting them in two different camps. The first camp is a camp that, that loves God. They see God, they know God, and they follow after him. And then the second camp is a group that that knows God. But they don't follow after him. It says that there's wickedness in their mouth, that they, they speak evil against their mother's son, and that uh, when somebody goes to commit um, a, a robbery or goes to, to do evil, that they're consenting with it, or an adulteress, they consent with it. And it leads us to, to Psalm fifty twenty one, where it says, These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but this I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. See, in all of the things that were happening there, there was two camps. There was a camp that saw God and followed him. And there was a camp that saw God and did not follow him. And it said that God kept silent about the things they did. But the thing that he rebuked them for, the thing that really was the concerning factor in their life, is that they thought God was altogether like them. That their perspective of who God was was not big enough. That they lowered God to be seated next to them 
rather than to seated above them. And I challenge you because this is something that is affecting the church today. It's something that affects every one of us. It's easy to get to the place to where we all of a sudden take God and we put him next to us and we try and say, God, I got this. I can handle this. If God is the authority, then he is the authority and we surrender to that in all things. And that's this book here that I brought in. This is a very old copy. I got this at Bible college when I went there. They have a newer one, so that's how long ago that was. Uh, But it's called Knowledge of the Holy, and it's by A.W. Tozer. It's an intellectual book. So if um, you guys are intellectually driven, this is a great book for you. If you are not intellectually driven, this book is extremely challenging. This is me reading it, and I have to read through it several times because it's written in Old English, and he's a lot smarter than myself. So it's challenging to read. But I love this book because what it does is it causes you to stop and to reflect on the attributes of who God is. It causes you to to look at how God is self-sufficient, how we need so many things to, to exist in this life, whether that be air or water or food or even the touch of another human being. Yet God doesn't need anything to exist. That God's incomprehensible. That he's the Trinity, that he is love, that he's mercy, that he's grace. And it just breaks down all the attributes of God and it just says stop and reflect on how big he is. Stop and reflect on how good he is. Because if we have a correct perspective of who God is, then it will allow us to have a correct perspective on the life that we live. And so that's what we hope today goes, that we would look and that we would see God. The first pillar of the study today would be God enthroned. Who is God? Who is God? Isaiah 6 gives us a great picture into the throne room of God. Very few people have seen in this room, but here in Isaiah 6 we get a great picture. Read with me in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, two to cover his face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out, and the house was filled with smoke. So the first thing that we're getting is God enthroned. We get to see this amazing scene in which Isaiah is is telling us about. The first thing that he says is, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a good-ish king, right? I think everybody... If you're a man, you get good-ish, right? Sort of good. So he was a good-ish king. And he was somebody in whom was restoring the worship of God in that time. And Isaiah here is coming to a place to where he's crying out saying, in the year that this man in, in whom was leading people towards God died, we scrambled looking, well, who we, what are we going to do? Who is it that sits on the throne? Who's the authority? What's going on? And he said, in that moment... When his faith was starting to waver, in that moment when he was starting to struggle, it said that he saw the Lord seated on the throne. See, now, I I wanted to bring a throne. That one was super expensive. Um, My buddy sent me a a thing on, I don't know, eBay or something. They had a throne that looked similar to that, and it was like $1,500. And I was like, that is a super expensive prop. I will not get approval for that. But I thought, if I came and I brought a throne and I sat it here, we would understand, like, Like that throne, you're going, that thing, whoever sits on that 
has money or power or authority or something because that's what it looks like, like a throne. And it's maybe not so much for us because we don't actually have like the, the throne itself, but in the olden days they did. Pontius Pilate sat on a throne of judgment when he judged Jesus. Uh, the kings and the authorities in that land and all that day all had a throne and they would sit on that throne when they would hear um, things that would go on when they would judge people, when they would uh, be passing their authority and showing their authority. And so this is what we would look at. But if I came and sat a throne here, there's other chairs that are here. It may be a little bit of an elevation here, but the reality is, is that it doesn't really do justice. This throne in which we're talking about, I couldn't bring any chair and describe it. He can't even describe it. He just says that there's a throne. But in Revelation 20:11. The same throne that we're hearing about, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. See, this throne is the throne of thrones. This is the authority of authorities, the Alpha and the Omega. He would sit on this throne. It's a beautiful thing, because when he's looking at it, he's going, I'm looking for somebody to be the authority of our little little congregation here. And in doing so, I found the authority of all the world. He saw this throne, but the position in which he saw this throne wasn't just sitting next to you and I. It wasn't, Jesus is my homeboy. Those shirts and bobbleheads drive me crazy because that's taking God and making him altogether like us. He said, I saw the throne, and guess what? It wasn't next to me. It was high and lifted up. It was above everything or anything that man could ever create. It was sitting in a position to where God could cast Judgment and authority over everything. In the span of his hand, he holds everything. What is it to him? See, in this moment in which Isaiah was struggling with his face, he got a, a picture and he saw God. Can I ask you a question? When you're at a place to where you're struggling, you're battling, maybe you have a, having a tough time, with a relationship with somebody. They just don't get me. They just don't understand. Or they're not seeing my side. Any of those times. When you're struggling in a situation like that, do you stop? And do you think upon the throne of God? Do you stop and realize it's not about me. It's about him. I'm not the authority he is. Do we stop and do that? A lot of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, go, well, no. Because our emotions are running rampant, right? We're, we're not thinking about God in those moments. And here he is, when he's at a place to where his emotions are running rampant, it said that God caused him to see into a scenario that not anybody else had seen, and that is this throne room. And it was God seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and it was, they have, were being worshipped. God was being worshipped, right? But who was he being worshipped by? The seraphim. This is... Any of you guys, sci-fi, thriller people? No. Star Wars, yeah. So usually it's the tech guys, so respect that. Uh, but these seraphim, right? These are the ones that get me, and I'm like, what? This is so cool. They have six wings. Whoa. I've never seen anything with six wings. That's so cool. They had two covering their face. Well, how do they fly? They can't see. You know, I've just All these things run through my head. Pray for my wife. It's sometimes scary. 
But then they had two that covered their feet for that sign of respect. And, and it said that they flew around and they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These, these creatures that would blow our minds, their, their whole purpose in creation was to sing praises unto God. And they weren't even, they weren't just like, holy, holy. They were singing so loudly that it said that the foundations were shaking. Man, this, this throne room, this experience is just surreal. These, these seraphims, they're just singing praises unto God. And they're singing that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But they don't, aren't talking about that room, though, when they talk about his glory. Did you guys catch that? The thing that they're singing about is the whole earth is filled with your glory. Now, I can see that they said heaven is filled with your glory. Because that makes sense to me. You have seraphims. Sweet. You have this throne that is obviously, like, massive and awesome. You have this room that they're in that's filled with smoke and is shaking, and you're like, awesome worship circle. Like, so I could see if they were, like, talking about the glory there, but he's, they're saying the earth is where we really get to see your glory. That's where you really get to see it. Like the song that we were singing, the thrones and the angels, they, they just they marvel at who God is. Just marveling at who he is. And that's the thing that is awesome about God. This throne room that we see, they're talking about us. They're talking about what God is doing here. Who is God? He's so much bigger and so much... It it transcends anything our brain can think about. I'll give you an example. We talk about the bitterness and the anger that we would harbor as people. This week I got the opportunity to sit down with people who had been harboring bitterness for over 30 years. The, the amount of hate that was directed towards one another was just unbearable. You can imagine after 30 years of harboring a bitterness that you would have for somebody. And on one side, you had somebody who was defending themselves um, because they were the one that had wronged the other one, defending themselves. And on the other side, you had somebody who was lashing out with just bitterness and wrath and anger. And I went up to my wife. It was Thursday, and I, I told her after work, I said, I just, I just don't see reconciliation in this. I don't, I don't see it. And in the infinite wisdom that the Lord will show your spouse when he wants to humble you, um, he said, well, do you think God is big enough to restore this relationship? And, you know, what, <laughs> what do you say after you already revealed your hand of saying, I don't think that they're strong enough. And you know, the reality was, what was I looking at? I was looking at the two of them going, well, they're not strong enough to restore it. And she said, well, it's God. And I said, you know what? I, I believe 100% that God is big enough to restore this, but I don't think that they're willing to. I don't think that they're willing to come to the place of seeing God in this. I said, but we will see. And so I went and I met with them and started off, it's very typical, defending, lashing out. So I'm like, well, Lord, I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do in this. And then about halfway, um, I saw something happen. I saw a heart soften. Instead of defending, I saw humility and saying, I'm sorry, I made the mistake, and I, I, I want to make up for that. I want to make it right. Can we start afresh today? And then I saw, instead of lashing out with bitterness, I saw a softening of the heart. I saw tears flow of remorse, of all the bitterness that had been held. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, I realized two things. One, my perspective of who God was 
was so far below who he was. Like in my mind, I'm, I'm counseling people on God, and I'm not even really trusting that God would work out this bitterness. And two, I get to see the Lord high and lifted up in a situation that I never thought I would. And the reality is, is that whatever happens from that point on, it's, it's going to be something that the Lord's going to be working on. But I got to see the Lord work something out that I never thought I would. And it caused me to stop and think, man, am I missing it? Am I, am I, am I altogether thinking of God lower than he should be? Am I coming to the place of going, man, God, you're so good and you're so big, but I'm not even touching the tip of the iceberg of how big and how good he is. Francis Chan wrote a book that was called Crazy Love. In the very first chapter, he said, Christians need to stop praying. And I was like, perked my interest because I do not agree with that. So I was like, what's he trying to say here? So I started reading into it, and he said, not, not really that we would stop praying, but that we would stop just coming to God with our, our petitions and intercessions, and that we would take time to stop and just reflect on how good and how big he is. That we would take time to stop and just gaze upon God and say, God, you are so good. You're so much bigger than I can ever think. Listen to this. Again, the knowledge of the holy. It says this in the second chapter. It says, this is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. Few of us have let our hearts gaze and wonder at the I am, the self-existing self, back of which no creature can think. Such thoughts are too painful for us. We prefer to think where it ought to do more good, about how to build a better mousetrap, for instance, or how to make two blades of grass grow where one grew before. And for this, we are now paying a too heavy price in the secularization of our religion and the decaying of our inner lives. Perhaps some sincere but puzzled Christians may at this juncture wish to inquire about the practicality of such concepts as I am trying to set forth here. What bearing does this have on my life, you may ask? What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this and in times such as these? To this, reply, to this I reply that because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all of our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. This is the, the, this is 1963 he died. And he said in the 50s and 60s that there was too many people that were passing by um, in land of Bibles, in churches, and they weren't stopping and gazing on who the Lord was. The crazy thing is that in the last 50, 60 years, I think that the distractions have increased exponentially. It's easy for us to become distracted and to forget who God is. It's easy for us to start thinking that God is altogether like us. And if we start thinking that he's altogether like us, then we lose perspective of how powerful and how good and how gracious and how just he is. We lose the attributes of God. We lose the things that make him God. And we make him altogether like us. Listen, Isaiah 37, 15 
Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, and of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. In 2 Samuel 7, 28, it says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. In Nehemiah 9, 7, he says, Nevertheless, if your great mercy, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious, and merciful. See, the thing about these three men is these three men came to the place to where they saw God. Every one of those statements, it said, you are God, you alone, you are God, and your words are true, you are God. They all saw God, and all of them in middle of peril or middle of their trials. But here's the thing. Many of us in this room have said, well, I have seen God. I know that God is good. I know that he is big. I know these things ever since I was a young kid or ever since I was got saved or whatever it is. But listen, there's a difference between these men here and just knowing and just seeing God. They also knew him intimately. See, in second Samuel, he said, your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant. And Nehemiah said, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Seeing God high and lifted up is just the first step. The second step is knowing who he is. And as we look at that, that's going to lead us to Philippians 2. And that's going to be, what is God like? God dethroned. Philippians 2, verse 5. It's one of my favorite sections in Scripture. My actual first time that I was able to uh, teach was my fourth semester at Bible College. They came to me and said, would you like to do a morning devotional? And I said, absolutely. My perspective of ministry and everything, teaching when I was young, was shameful and probably a little arrogant upon myself. But I went into that excited to share this passage, and I came out out of that humbled in my weakness. (laughs) My teaching was, is there any encouragement in Christ? That's pretty cool. Any comfort in his love. I mean, come on. Like, it was, it was pretty bad, guys. I'll be honest with you. But the Lord is good. And today, this uh, verse in which I have taught through several times has impacted me each time differently. And today, I'm looking at it from the perspective of God dethroned. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Seeing God high and lifted up, remember that scene in Isaiah 6. Remember the seraphim. Remember the the rock and worship circle they had. Remember the throne. And here we go in Philippians 2. He said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, though he was in the expressed image of God, though he was in the throne room being worshipped, he made himself of no reputation. Processing that, that God was going from being worshipped to having everybody know who he was, having everybody know his position, his authority, that he would willingly make himself 
of no reputation. That word of no reputation is actually the word kino. Not the game, kino in the Greek word. And actually what it means is to empty himself or to make himself void. That God would willingly step out of the throne room, this throne that is so powerful, and that he would make himself empty or void. But listen, it doesn't stop there. It said that he actually emptied his reputation too. It said that that word for reputation is also kino. So that God emptied himself, not once, but twice. Emptied himself. Want to know who God is? God is so compassionate towards us. He so wants to have that intimacy with us that when he formed us and when he made us in that whole garden scene that was there, that he would willingly step out of what he was in in Isaiah 6, that he would willingly step out of that to humble himself and make himself empty. That he would make himself dependent upon his creation. That he would become the form of a man. And not only that, that he would be born in a manger where there would be nobody that was there, nobody there to celebrate the greatest act that had ever been shown to man, the redemption plan that transcends everything else that is going on. Any of these shows or musicians or anything, that this time in which man would be redeemed, that the earth would be restored, that God would come and deal with the, the pain and the suffering that man had caused on themselves, that he would pay the ransom and nobody was there. There was no room found for him. So much so that the angels were stirred up that they had to go and tell shepherds and say, do you understand what is going on? That the Savior is born to you today. These warriors, these ones who are created to mess stuff up, right? They're created to wreak havoc. We're coming as messengers saying, do you understand what is going on? They had to preface it with, do not be afraid. This is just a message that I'm coming to bring you. Wake up. Today unto you a born a Savior. Go, go worship, see him, see it. Just as they missed it, it's so easy for us to miss it in our lives. You say, okay, well, there's God, and I see God. He's high and lifted up. But does he know what I'm going through? So often I get that when I go to counsel people and say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, yeah, let me tell you about Jesus. Okay, I know who Jesus is. That Jesus thing doesn't work for me. And I said, well, then you've seen him, but you don't know him. You've seen him high and lifted up. You see that he is God, but you aren't surrendering to who he is. You're not allowing this scene, the Philippians 2, the God that would humble himself, bring himself to where he would empty himself, become obedient to the point of becoming a slave to men. He had all authority. He was sitting in the King of Kings, Lord of Lords throne. He had all authority to come and to deal with our ransom, but not have to be a slave. He didn't have to. He willingly chose to make himself a slave to his creation in order that he would be empathetic and sympathetic towards our needs, that he would know what it is, and that he would be a beacon point for us in what it is to serve one another. I tell the people, that, that God has never been allowed inside of here. Because if he was then you wouldn't be having this conversation. You wouldn't be saying that Jesus thing doesn't work for me because it's not a thing. It's real life, and it's bigger than any one of us. He humbled himself, made himself a slave in the likeness of man, but then he didn't stop there. It said that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
And for so many of us in this room, we might not understand what that was, but that cross was actually in the Greek was actually a cuss word. They weren't allowed to use it if you're a Greek citizen or a Roman citizen because that was a death that was left for traitors and murderers. He was exposed naked and ashamed on a cross where people wouldn't even use the name of a cross for us. And the reality is this, that what actually happened on the cross, there wasn't a word that was found for it, so they actually had to make one up, and it's called excruciating. And that literally means out of the cross. That what happened on the cross, the pain, the, the disdain, the, the suffering that would go on, actually had to make up a word for it because there was nothing that would explain it. That God would humble himself to this point. And I hope and I pray that this blows our minds because this message is hotter than the weather outside, I'll tell you that much. It has the ability to change our perspective. There is no relationship that God can't restore. There's no addiction that he cannot break. There is nothing that he cannot do. The problem that we have so many times is because we do not see him high and lifted up. We do not give him the glory that he is due. And because we think, oh, well, I'll try that God thing, and we see him, but we don't actually surrender to him. Do we know who he is? He willingly dethroned himself in order that he would pay the ransom that we could not pay. Listen, I think it's best summed up in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, if you guys will flip there with me real quick. Hebrews 12 gives us a picture of all these things that we did. And you say, well, why don't you just read Hebrews 12? It doesn't make for a very impactful message. It's just a driving the nail home here. Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The application that we take from this is God enthroned. Who is God? What is he like? He willingly dethroned himself. So how do we apply that to our lives? Right here in verse 1 it says, let us lay aside every weight, every burden, Every anger, all the, the wrath and the bitterness that is inside of us, listen, we all know that it's there. We all know that we're capable of great evil. The world that we live in is evidence of that every single day. Let us lay aside every single weight which is slowing us down and which is hindering us from running and every sin which clings so closely. It's like a bear trap that just would snatch us up. He said, let us lay aside the weights and let us avoid those sins which will keep us from running the race that is set before us. In verse 2, though, this is the key. Looking to Jesus. You've got to see who he is. And you've got to know who, what he's about. The founder and perfecter of our faith. It's got to become personal. You don't get saved because your grandparents brought you to church or your parents did. You get saved because he's impacted you and because you have surrendered your heart to him. He is the one who is the perfecter and the author of our faith. Becoming personal. Well, why should we surrender to the Lord, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? Think about this, man. This verse right here, if you could just 
write it on your mirror in the morning or just write it on something that you would see every day, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, that's you, that's me, that's the, the relationship, that intimacy that he wants to have. For that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. The crazy thing is that when we get up in the morning, do we stop and ponder and say, man, thank you, God, for giving me today. Thank you, God, for giving me life. Thank you for giving me my wife or my spouse or my kids or the things that we so often curse the Lord for are the very things that he came to bless us with. But because we're so selfish, because we do not view who God is, we look at those things and we go, man, these are hindrances. These are things that are slowing us down. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised this shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason that we need God is because man is enthroned in his authority of his own life. Again, that question of who is seated on the throne of your life. Listen to this. In the knowledge of the holy, he says, so subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated self. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. It is only when the gospel or when in the gospel the soul is brought before the face of the most holy one without the protective shield of ignorance that that frightful moral incongruity excuse me, is brought home to the conscience. See, this is the, this is the problem that every one of us in this room has, is that we all feel as though we are seated on a throne and that we are the kings of our own lives. Well, I get to make my decisions. I get to do this. And the reality is it's only when the gospel is presented to us that we come to the place to where we realize it's not about us, that it really is not about us, that it's about the Lord and what he wants to do through us. Listen to this, Isaiah 6, verse 5. Flipping back and forth, I'm sorry. I promised I wouldn't be a page-turner in Bible college. And for this one day, I have broken my promise to myself. But it's worth it. It's good. Again, in that throne room, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations are being shaken. The uh, house is filled with smoke. The Lord brought his own smoke machine. Verse 5, it said, Woe is me. This is Isaiah speaking. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The response that he had when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he realized that his perspective of who God was was so far below who he was. He said, woe is me. I am unworthy to be in this room. I'm unworthy to see you. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And now I know that because I have seen the king. 
This is it, guys. Isaiah 6, 5 is the principle in which we all have to come to. This is us being presented with the gospel and recognizing that we are so unworthy of who he is. We're so unworthy that the life that he gave, that we come to the place and say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen to what the Lord does, though. The Lord doesn't leave us in that broken state. He comes and he restores. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips, or touched my mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. This is the blessed hope that we all have. This is it. This is what gets us excited, in that we would come to the place where we'd see God, that we would know him, and that we would have the response where we would say, Woe is me, for I am undone. And that God would say, Here, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. Now walk in newness of life. Let me tell you what. When in Revelation, when John saw the Lord in Revelation, this man who had spent three years with Jesus, he knew him. He knew him intimately. They ate meals together. They slept next to each other. And he knew who he was. But in Revelation, when he saw him in his glorified state, it said that he fell before him as a dead person. That he literally just fell before him as a dead person. Because in that moment... He realized that though he knew who God was, he didn't know him in that level. He didn't know how big he was. He didn't know how powerful he was. And I pray that for each one of us in this room that we would do that. Because for so many of us in this room, bitterness and wrath and anger is eating us alive. Addictions are destroying us. Whether we allow it or whether we let people know that it is, they are destroying us. As a church collectively and as individuals, we are coming to the place to where our inner lives are are. Uh, our, our souls are being just kind of taken away and are just being beaten up because we're getting to the place to where we forget to see God. Can I encourage you guys with this, that you guys would come to the place that today even, that you would go and that you would have an experience like this where you would come before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord what was me? I'm looking at the sun that's out here in these beautiful trees and I'm looking at everything and I am so unworthy to sit here and say, I want my way. I want what I, woe is me for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I need your grace each and every day to make it, each and every day to grow and to progress, that we would lay down all those weights that so easily ensnare us, the sins that are just tearing us down and tearing us apart, that we would come to the place where we would lay those before the Lord. We would allow him to cleanse us. We would allow him to take his rightful place as the authority of our lives. Again, I ask you, who is seated on the throne of your life? For some of us, if it's the answer is that it's you, would you be willing to come to the place where you would willingly dethrone yourself in order that God would have authority in your life, that he would bring that healing coal, and that he would cleanse you? Listen, Revelation 3.21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The beauty is the Lord is willing to give us everything if we're willing to give him us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, just so desperate, Lord, for you. Lord, it's so hard for us to wrap our brains around who you are and how big you are and how good you are. But, Father, we pray that you would just give us this throne room experience, that we would be able to see you, Lord, that we'd be able to know, Lord, that you are good, that you are big, 
Lord, that there's nothing that is outside of you. Father, even when things seem to be falling apart as they were for Isaiah in the scripture today, um, he saw you. And we pray for those that come in, Lord, and they're having that time where they're just they're scrambling going, what am I going to do or where am I going or how am I going to get healing or anything that they would be coming in with, Lord, that they would come to the place to where they would see you seated on the throne, high and lifted up in their lives. They would know that you were willing to step down just as you did with Peter when he said, do you love me? And you stepped down and you met him where he was at in his pain and his suffering and you met him. Father, we pray that you would meet those that are here today that are just broken. Father, your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted and to the contrite spirit. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would just raise those up. Raise those up that are just struggling. Raise those up that are at a place to where they need more of you. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand here.